Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who, just five years into my legal career, found myself questioning, why work so hard to barely be squeezing life in? So that I wouldn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided to redefine success on my terms from the inside out, which is what enabled me to build a profitable legal practice while navigating my way through the challenges of two kids and two bed rests, the 2008 financial crisis, and a battle with breast cancer. What I learned is that you can build a successful legal career without sacrificing your health or personal happiness. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hey there, everybody. This is Heather Mulder, host of the Life in Law Podcast, and I'm excited to have you with me here today. Today, we have a special guest. We are getting into a topic we've never, ever gotten into before, so I'm really excited about today's topic. I want to welcome to the podcast, Eliza Schatzman. She is the president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project, a nonprofit that helps law clerks have positive clerkship experiences through extension of support and resources that they might not otherwise have. Welcome, Eliza. Thanks for having me on the show. So when you reached out to me, I was really kind of excited about this topic because we'd never covered anything like this before on the podcast. Today, we're getting into judicial accountability and specifically gender discrimination and harassment. I think the best place for us to start is just to talk about you know your story and how you got to where you are now. Sure. So I graduated from WashU Law in St. Louis in 2019. Um, during law school, I did four different internships with the Justice Department, and it really just piqued my interest in becoming a prosecutor. Decided that I wanted to become a homicide AUSA in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Wow. So I decided to clerk in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term. D.C. Superior Court is the local trial court in the District of Columbia. Our judges are unique in that they're Senate confirmed for 15 year terms. So started the clerkship in August of 2019, intending to launch my career as a homicide AUSA. And pretty much just weeks into the clerkship, the judge for whom I clerked began to harass me and discriminate against me based on my gender. He would kick me out of the courtroom and tell me that I made him uncomfortable. And he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He would tell me that I was aggressive and nasty and a disappointment. Day I found out that I passed the DC bar exam, so a big day in my life. He called me into his inner chambers, got in my face, and told me, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was just, you know, I was so devastated. I cried on the walk to work. I cried myself to sleep at night. I wanted to be reassigned to a different clerkship, but my workplace didn't have an employee dispute resolution plan in place. It might have enabled me to be reassigned. I confided in a couple of law clerks and mentors who advised me to stick it out because I knew that I needed a year of legal experience to be eligible to apply to the DCUSAO. So we eventually transitioned to remote work during the pandemic, March 2020, moved back to Philly to stay with my parents. The judge basically ignored me for six weeks. My calls, texts, emails went unanswered. Oh, my. He called me up one day in late April and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. And then he hung up on me. So I called DC Courts HR and they told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges and that law clerks and judges have a unique relationship. 
Then they asked me, didn't I know that I was an at-will employee? So I connected with another DC judge who directed me to the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. That's the regulatory body for DC judges where I ultimately filed my complaint. I drafted a complaint in May of 2020, but I wanted to wait to file it till I'd secured a new job because I was already afraid that this judge was going to retaliate against me. Uh-huh. So it took me about a year to get back on my feet, secured my dream job in the DC USAO as a special assistant US attorney, moved back to DC. And in July, 2021, I was two weeks into training at the USAO, had started working there when I was alerted that the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer at the place where I was already working was being revoked. Whoa. So I had tearful calls to USAO HR, to the DC court's EO office, to some friends and mentors. I drafted a judicial complaint, or I went back to the one that I had already drafted and added some sections about the negative reference, which I hadn't yet seen, but believe was gender-based, filed that complaint. A couple of days later, the USAO extended an offer to interview for a different job, and then they revoked that offer as well based on the same negative reference. Uh-huh. I was two years into my legal career, and this judge seemed to just have enormous power to destroy my career and ruin my reputation. So I hired attorneys, and in the summer and fall of 2021, I participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Oh, good. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we were several months into the investigation when I found out separately from some attorneys who reached out privately to me that the judge was under investigation into other misconduct, that he'd already agreed to take leave pending an investigation at the time he filed the negative reference about me. The USAO wasn't alerted to the circumstances surrounding the reference. And it wasn't until January of 2022, pursuant to a private settlement agreement that I reached with the former judge, that he made a clarifying statement to the USAO, addressing some but not all of the outrageous statements that I read in the reference that I received from him. But, um, you know, the damage had been done. I'm blackballed basically from the DCUSAO for my, what I thought was my dream job. Um, And it kind of led me to a different path, which I know we're going to get into, but, you know, July 16th was 2021 was the day I got that terrible news and the one year anniversary just passed this weekend. And it was a tough day kind of reflecting back on why I moved back to DC a year ago and how my life has just totally changed. So it's interesting to me how much power these judges have, you know, I'd never thought about it that way, but obviously they have a ton of power and everybody just lets them do whatever. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. They have enormous power over their clerks' lives and careers and reputations, enormous power over the attorneys who appear before them, obviously over the litigants who appear before them. And there's just this culture of deifying judges, which I think is incredibly troubling. I mean, the problem is the federal judiciary is exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. There is pending legislation that would address this, but I think it sends a message to judges, particularly the misbehaving ones, which is not all, but some, that they are above the anti-discrimination laws that they enforce. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it just sends a powerful message to the misbehaving judges, you are above the law. I think yeah. my former supervisor felt that way, thought that he would get away with the negative reference. Nobody would question him. No one at the USAO ever questioned him about it, so. There was a statement you made in there, which I find very typical. Just stick it out for a year, 
this is so typical, really generally speaking. A lot of people kind of have this attitude of just stick it out. It's only X amount of time, then you can move on, right? So I want to hear more about that. Who said those things to you? How supportive were people when you told them what was going on? I mean, you know, what was that like? So I did not confide in too many people during my clerkship. I confided in a couple female law clerks from chambers nearby. I remember, oh my gosh, a couple of times in the winter, I would go upstairs to their chambers and just start sobbing. Like, And we were um, transitioning calendars. So we'd just like sit in the boxes of like folders and just start crying. And I would say, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, do I need to find a new job? I mean, people were not at all supportive. Um, a couple of mentors just, you know, advised me to try to stick it out. Um, they didn't have too much other advice to offer. I think everybody throughout this process has warned me that I'm going up against a judge who has enormous power. And I think the way I thought about it during my clerkship is that this is really terrible, but it's a year and I need to stick it out because this is my dream job that I mm. just desperately want to be in AUSA. I did not think, and perhaps I was naive, I did not think it would turn into this enormous retaliatory long-term negative relationship where this judge was just set on destroying my career. And as I'm talking to law clerks now, there are definitely folks who can relate to these aspects of my story and the long-term negative relationship between judge and clerk. And when people reach out to me to share their stories, I'm now very concerned that what starts out as mistreatment in chambers can really extend far beyond that. It was a lot of female attorneys who advised me to stick it out. It was also female attorneys who advised me that the right professional decision would have been not to report, mm. not to file a complaint. I was told by some commission investigators that I must have done something wrong because the judge hired me in the first place. And there were female attorneys who advised me not to speak publicly, you know, don't, don't want to tarnish the reputation. So mm -hmm. just now as I'm speaking out, I've received enormous support from many aspects of the legal community. But at the time, I was definitely advised to keep quiet. I didn't realize just the enormous power that this judge was going to have over my life. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. So first, it's human nature. We tend to assume, well, why would he do this? Why would he? You know, maybe he's more difficult. Maybe he's a pain. But that just sounds over the top. So there's this assumption where they put it back on the victim. But it's got to be at least partially your fault. And then there's also this attitude of, well, okay, maybe you're totally telling the truth. Don't know, even if they do believe you. People also assume it's just temporary. It'll be okay. But it wasn't for you. And people, I don't know what his motivations were. I don't know that it matters. For whatever reason, he was irrational in his... <laughs> going after you. And honestly, it's probably part of what was his downfall, I would think, because you do stuff that like that enough, somebody eventually is going to push back enough where people will start coming out. Whereas if you had just, he had just kept quiet and you'd moved along, you probably would have been more quiet about it, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. I mean, I had always intended to file my judicial complaint, but if I had just proceeded along from special assistant U.S. attorney to AUSA in the office, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what would have happened. He might have retired from the bench. He, right. I, I don't know. Um, I would have filed my complaint, but perhaps it would have been dismissed. Perhaps I would have moved on with my life. 
AUSAs are kind of discouraged from speaking publicly, definitely not speaking out against judges. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think both of our trajectories would have been quite different. But I mean, it later came out that I was not the only law clerk who this judge had harassed and that various individuals were aware of this, didn't warn me, didn't warn others. I mean, harassers don't wake up one morning and start harassing. It's a history and a pattern of misconduct. And the problem is that if people are not speaking out, not filing complaints, not documenting it, we're just going to perpetuate the cycle of abuse. And I mean, there are some interesting professors who write about like victim disbelieving and skepticism. And that's just so important. And that's definitely what I felt like I was facing before the commission is that there was just this deep skepticism. But why would I put my career and reputation on the line to make any kind of allegations that were less than fully truthful? I mean, when I mm-hmm. filed my complaint, as far as I knew, the judge was on the bench for the next 10 years. And I did not know he was on administrative leave. As far as right. I knew, he would just have enormous power to continue retaliating against me. So yeah. I really just always feel like I need to push back against anyone who's suggesting that law clerks make false allegations. I spoke with a female judge a couple weeks ago who said that law clerks are filing false allegations, filing false complaints maliciously. (laughs) And that was troubling. This idea that too many are filing, I I think that's a little bogus personally. Um, (laughs) I think law clerks very rarely file these complaints because they know they will be disbelieved and the investigations are stacked against them. And really, For law clerks right now, there are two processes, internal employee dispute resolution or a formal complaint, uh, either with the judicial commission for the state courts or Mm -hmm. the JCND Act for federal clerks. And those are run by judges. Mm -hmm. So there is really, law clerks kind of know that the deck is stacked against them. Um, One of the things I try to highlight in sharing my own story and especially the aspects of the commission investigation is that it's really not necessarily a fair process. I'm sure it's not. Yeah, yeah, no. changes are important too. <laughs> yeah, well, and but my point is for the judge, it's like to sit there and complain yes. that there are too many. It's like, no, no, like you <laughs> let them file the complaint. The likelihood of them filing a false complaint is pretty low, given the fact that they have no power, given the fact that things are already stacked against them, and then see how it plays out. And if it is a false complaint, that's going to come out. Like, it just is over time, right? Especially given how the deck is stacked against them to begin with. From the victim standpoint, it's a lot harder, which is where you and groups like yours come into play. Before we get to that, though, I find it really interesting that a lot of the people that you're talking about who seem to discourage you from doing anything sound like they were women. Yes? Yes. (laughs) Pretty much all of them. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so I had a guest on not too long back, Amy Conway Hatcher. And for anybody who has not gone back and listened to that episode, you really should. Um, Because we get into, it's, it's about a totally different topic, but a similar topic nonetheless. Because she talks also about how women often in the legal profession complain about our lives and how unfair it is and the inequity of promotions and all that, especially like partnership and then what we're paid And yet we play a part in that based on varying things, based on not speaking up, based on not sticking up for ourselves, based on not speaking up when we see it happening with other people, based on making, you know, all kinds of excuses, all the stuff that we do. So it's interesting to hear that you have a similar story in a totally different context, but it sounds like, you know, women, again, are too afraid to speak up, want to just push through, want to, you know... And we all complain, 
constantly. And I, I remember this from a very early in my career, the women complaining profusely about how unfair and it's inequitable and it's all these things. And yet the vast majority of them never spoke up and did anything about it. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What, do you, what are your thoughts? So I think it's a couple things. I mean, sometimes it is women who climb the ladder and then just kick it down behind them, which is mm-hmm. its own concerning situation. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also really a culture of silence and obsequiousness and waiting to be asked, waiting to be invited, waiting to, <laughs> yeah, waiting to be invited to the table. I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I always asserted myself and just took my seat at the table. I knew that nobody was going to just hand me anything. And the answer is always no, if you don't ask, so why not take your shot and take your seat at the table? Mm-hmm. So that definitely caused problems between myself and I guess some women throughout <laughs> my career, people who did not want me to just take my seat. And um, your judge, it sounds like, right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> he did not like women and he certainly did not like assertive women. Yeah. Yeah. That was a through line. I think there's also a feeling of, I got through it and you should too. Mm-hmm. And as I was interacting with the commission and the investigators, as I was reaching out to AUSAs, defense attorneys, folks who I knew the judge had mistreated or people who had witnessed him mistreating others, trying to get people to speak with the commission, they all said, you know, I would never speak out against the judge. That's my career and reputation and nothing's going to be done. And I think the through line for some of them, especially women of a certain generation, which is probably one generation before mine, I got through it. You should too. Did any of that change? I kind of think I know your answer, but I'm curious to know, given that this judge is no longer on the bench, given that there were, you know, it sounds like there were more people who had evidence against him. More stuff came out about this person. There were other things going on. Once all of that happened, did anybody change their tune at all? Or were they still kind of like, yeah, you shouldn't have? People did change their tune a little bit. And I should okay. be clear, he was not removed based on my complaints. There were other, there was other stuff that he was being investigated for. Mm-hmm. And that's hard um, to know that he was not disciplined based on my complaints or the other allegations against him. That that's still hard. And I think the commission and the DC courts kind of and the judge himself kind of banked on that silencing me. The fact that my complaint was dismissed, that means I will stay quiet, but that hasn't silenced me at all, obviously. <laughs> um So yeah, people reached out to me privately over the past probably six months and started apologizing for not dissuading me from clerking from the judge. That was mostly men, male AUSAs, but I still appreciated it. Hmm. And yeah, now I think people kind of are saying either, oh, I suspected something for a while, or I didn't suspect anything, but I'm so sorry. And I wish I'd kind of supported you. So okay, good. Yeah, yeah, there are still some you know, I'm not expecting an apology for, from anyone, but it would be nice. <laughs> um, well, I think it would be nice more from a perspective of, although, yes, it would be nice for you, it's necessary for people to start opening up to seeing what's going on when these things are happening and being willing to speak up and support people moving forward because nothing's going to change if more people aren't willing to do that. Definitely. I mean, what I have said to a couple of folks associated with the commission that investigated my complaints is that there, what I feel was mishandling of this investigation chills future complaints by law clerks against judges. And I share my story a lot now, and I feel like I want to empower other clerks to speak out, share their stories, file complaints. 
but I know that I'm talking about all these really terrible things that happened to me. And I've gone from a career in law to more of a law adjacent one. And I probably could never work as an AUSA. Um, and I certainly couldn't appear before the DC courts right now. So I just hope that I am, you know, empowering others to speak out. So you've mentioned the commission a couple times. Are you willing to get into a little bit more of what happened and why you think it was mishandled? Yeah, I can carefully and a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you share what you feel comfortable with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's important and I definitely want to be careful, but I think it's important because even though the commission is unique to D.C., the aspects are kind of more generalized to other judicial conduct commissions and state courts and the mm-hmm. JCND Act, which is the federal process. And that's run by judges, judges investigating their judiciary colleagues. So I, yeah, I filed this complaint. I was, it was just a devastating and isolating time in my life. I hadn't really told anyone what was going on. I hadn't told my family. Um, basically my only interactions during like a four month period were with my attorneys and like the special counsel and a couple other investigators from the commission. And I just submitted this heartfelt, it was like 20 pages or 30 pages of a complaint detailing not only everything that happened in chambers, but, um, this negative reference, which I was trying to get a copy of and wasn't able to until private settlement negotiations, um, which was enormously frustrating. So I speak with a special counsel And she spends like two hours needling me about like why I couldn't adjust to the judge's unique work style of harassing me. And I just felt, you know, I felt like you are a woman, you had a, you know, great career in the law. Why don't I deserve the same respect? And I just feel like there are two types of people who investigate these types of complaints against judges. They're the ones that understand the sensitive nature of these issues. And even if they're ultimately going to dismiss a complaint for whatever reason, they kind of treat everybody with respect. And they're the ones who don't. And I think the commission falls into the latter category Mm. of people who just didn't understand the sensitive nature, were very skeptical of my allegations. Um, And it was just a terrible time. People have asked me, like, what did I expect would happen? And how did that compare to what actually happened? I mean... I was certainly not expecting to get justice through this commission, but it was one of my only avenues for relief and just the ways that they kind of dismissed my allegations without really digging into it. I mean, what I've said publicly is that to the best of my knowledge, they never sought a copy of the negative reference from the then judge. They never really asked him any questions about it. Uh, I mean, I filed a FOIA request with the DCUSA that was denied in full. So I only got my hands on the reference through private settlement negotiations or else I never would have known all these outrageous things that were said about me. So I just felt like I deserved at least respect and to be listened to. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that come to light. Well, to my mind, at least when you're talking about this. Number one, it seems outrageous to me that a judge can give a reference and have all this negative stuff and the human who he's talking about can't ever see it, can't know, just hears from others, oh, it's bad. It's an issue with um, government references. So this was a USAO background investigation. Mm-hmm. And so there are like privacy concerns. And yeah, it. I think it's harder to do it in the context of like a private employer, but for government mm-hmm. employers, definitely. And it's interesting when I speak with people about 
background investigations and security clearances, there's definitely a lot of gatekeeping that keeps good people out for whatever reason. I mean, people have like mental health issues or mm-hmm. some, something else in their past. And it really is a gatekeeping mechanism that keeps people from obtaining just, security clearances. The other thing that comes to mind is how on God's green earth are we supposed to be seen as fair and equitable when it comes to our court system, right? How are we supposed to – like? This is this is what we're founded on. This is why we have the courts. If we can't be that way with our own within the system itself, it just doesn't work well at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Like what are female litigants to think when they know that there are judges treating women like this, especially if you're involved in an anti-discrimination case or a Title VII case? Absolutely. I mean, there are misogynistic and misbehaving judges on the bench in D.C. right now. There are judges in courts across the country like this right now. And I think it really sends a message to female litigants, definitely. So if you had the ability to go back in time, would you change anything or do anything differently? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I mean, I've thought about that a lot. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I mean, I could have filed the complaint in May of 2020 before I had a new job, but no, not really. I mean, I don't regret filing my complaint in July of 2021. I don't regret going through the commission investigation. It was devastatingly painful, but you know, I'm on a different path now, certainly, but I think probably a better one. Mm -hmm. And while I thought for so long, five years, my entire legal career that I just desperately wanted to be in AUSA and I was going to do anything to get there and I was going to suffer through whatever it took, probably wasn't my dream job after all. And probably what I was meant to do was advocate for workplace protections for law clerks and ensure Mm -hmm. that what happened to me doesn't happen to others. So I don't think I regret anything. So it sounds like other than maybe filing a little bit earlier because you now know that he was going to blackball you regardless. Yes. Nothing. So what would you say to somebody who's facing this type of discrimination or any type of like discrimination? What can they do? Yeah. So I would preface it by saying I am enormously sensitive to fears of reputational harm and retaliation based on my personal experience. But if you are an employee a law clerk or someone else, and you are facing mistreatment and you do not report, the person who harassed you is probably going to harass other people as well. Uh, By remaining silent, you are perpetuating the cycle of abuse, and that's what we need to stop. So, I mean, definitely confide in people and keep track of who you've confided in, take notes and document things, but file a complaint, whether it's HR or EEO office, chief judge, formal complaint, you need to file something. You need mm-hmm. to get that documented because if the other law clerks who my judge had harassed had filed complaints, might have stopped him, at least would have created a, a record on which to build when I filed mine. Mm-hmm. So you need to you need to report. And I know that it's scary and what a lot of law clerks do or don't do is confide in their law schools. And there's the question of what are law schools doing with that information but you really just need to make sure other people are aware and other people are warned. And so let's take an even bigger step back. What do you think are some of the solutions that need to be introduced to make this more fair and equitable and allow for people to not be so scared 
to complain when they need to and for actual, you know, justice to be served. Yeah. So there is a bill called the Judiciary Accountability Act that would extend Title VII protections to the judiciary, including law clerks and federal public defenders. The entire federal judiciary right now is exempt from Title VII. So law clerks can't sue their harassers and seek damages for harms done to their lives, careers, and future earning potential. So while as a nonprofit leader, that's not the focus of my work to advocate for that bill. In my private capacity as a mistreated former law clerk, I think that's Mm -hmm. enormously important. And I think that bill, the JA, should be amended to cover the D.C. courts and other Article I courts as well. Um, So Title VII protections are enormously important. But I think that's the floor and not the ceiling. We need workplace protections that are delineated and enforced in every single courthouse so people know their rights, so people have various avenues to complain, to seek redress, and to confide in different people. Uh, Judges need to be required to attend employee dispute resolution training. It should be mandatory. Mm. They should sign in. They should stay there. Um, I talk to good judges who've been on the bench 10 years and say they've never attended EDR training. And then in terms of misbehaving ones, they're definitely the ones who evade EDR training. Um, I think we also need to revise the formal complaint process in the federal system and then state court systems as well. And I'm advocating for some specific rules changes to the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure to at least put their rules in line with the federal JCND Act complaint process. So a lot needs to be done. And I think part of it is empowering law clerks to speak out. We really just need a groundswell of complaints because right now, judiciary officials without any data to combat this can just say, well, law clerks aren't filing complaints, so there's no problem here. So we really need more people to be filing complaints. We also need to have judges, encourage judges to have difficult conversations with their judiciary colleagues. When you see a colleague misbehaving, pull them aside and talk to them. I mean, there is a culture of silence and protecting your brothers and sisters in robes that is also enormously problematic. I mean, I know in DC, we have DC bar rules, 2.14 and 2.15 address what happens if you see a judge's misconduct or poor health and reporting, but I don't believe those are enforced. So <laughs> it's, it's enforcing the existing rules. It would, it's enforcing the existing rules and creating new, better, and more stringent rules. And I definitely, maybe it's the former aspiring prosecutor in me, but I definitely think that punishment, threats of punishment, and then showing that we actually punish the misbehaviors is a way to make progress here, especially yes. when we have such like a history of not punishing anybody, even for gross misconduct. Judges are just retiring and evading discipline. So, yeah, your judge, is that what happened? He just retired? Um, so he was involuntarily retired, which is a disciplinary mechanism. Okay. So, yes. So he was not disciplined for harassing his clerks. And one of the concerning things about the DC Commission is in the 52 years of their existence, they have never disciplined a judge for gender discrimination, harassment, or retaliation which is a red flag that something is wrong (laughs) and they're not really. Yeah, because there's no way it's never happened, not even once. That's correct. Though I do suspect, though I don't have so much data to back this up, I just suspect that there have probably been judges who retired amid a cloud of, you know, allegations. Yeah, but um, yeah. So obviously we need better processes, better rules, better enforcement, and then just the judiciary itself, you guys need to clean it up. (laughs) 
know? Definitely. It's also like cultural change in the legal community. I mean, we've talked mm-hmm. about this a little bit, but um, it's encouraging a culture of honest discussion about clerkships, encouraging a culture of reporting and encouraging people to bring their full selves to work every day. Nobody, regardless of your personality or your identity, deserves to be harassed at work. I certainly mm-hmm. don't feel like I deserved what happened to me, even though I'm an assertive person. Here's the thing that I find interesting. We want more women lawyers, so we say, in the profession, right? And to be a lawyer, you need to be assertive. It's just part of being a lawyer. Good lawyers are very assertive. Good male lawyers are incredibly assertive. But when you get these female, like powerful female assertive attorneys out there, a lot of men don't like it. Now, not all men. I got to say, there have been a fair share of men who – in my experience, have enjoyed that and really appreciate it. But there are definitely some that seem to feel threatened by it. And, you know, we got to figure out as a profession, who do we really want to be? I think there was also some women who feel threatened by it. In my experience, I mean, maybe men are just being nice to me and it's women who are like telling me how they really feel. But I think usually it's women who are like, this woman is too assertive. She threatens me. Why isn't she waiting to be invited to the table kind of thing? That's what I've seen. Yeah, no, there's a fair share of that. I would say from what it sounds like that you're saying to me, so when I started practicing law, there was a lot of this in the law firms. A lot of this, this I had to go through hell, so should you. That's a lot of what I encountered. And I remember just thinking, you people are crazy because it's never going to change if we don't stop this, right? And there's a bit of bitterness and resentfulness that people feel after they go through these things sometimes that they then take out on their younger female counterpart, you know, kind of with the attitude of, well, if I had to, so should you. That has to stop. I do think there's less and less of that in the private practice world. It sounds to me like that change hasn't really begun in the judiciary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not even close in the judiciary, though. I mean, I hope we'll make changes. I think part of it is increasing diversity on the bench, though. Mm-hmm. I think diversity conversations can't be decoupled from judicial misconduct conversations. Like they have to go together, but it's definitely about increasing diversity on the bench. And when I talk about that, it's not just gender and racial, it's also right. generational diversity because mm. I'm talking to judges the younger ones get it, both liberal and conservative ones. And I think, I mean, it's really about treating judicial appointees as employers. You are running a small workplace. You are not, we should not just, we, (laughs) chief executives should not just be appointing people based on their judicial philosophy and not asking any questions about how does this appointee, how did he treat his colleagues when he was in private practice? Because asking tougher questions about that stuff usually comes out. Like I said earlier, harassers don't just wake up and start harassing. It's a pattern of misconduct. They've always been doing it. Yeah. 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 So I definitely see a generational divide here, but we certainly can't wait, you know, a decade or more to make these changes until we Mm -hmm. have younger, better judges. I think you bring up a good point. And I think that's something I've definitely seen. There is a generational difference and which there's some good news in that. Right. But the problem with that is I think the the younger generation, or we're not so young anymore, like my generation and the one immediately below me, they've already started taking over in the private world. I think when it comes to judiciary, people hang on longer. <laughs> and so you yeah. have all, you know, and so the, the change hasn't happened or hasn't started to happen as much. And so 
you're right, though. We can't just wait and hope that's what's going to solve the problem. It's still not right. And it should, we shouldn't have to just sit around and wait for it. The other thing I would say is sometimes when you just keep waiting, you create new people who have the, you know, or you attract the wrong people within that new generation into those positions because they see they can get away with it. And you don't want that. Right. You don't want to have a culture in chambers where the judges are committing misconduct and perpetuating a cycle of abuse where the law clerks, some of them think that that is okay. And that's Mm -hmm. how they're going to treat their colleagues because today's law clerks are tomorrow's prosecutors, PDs, judges. So Mm -hmm. we really need to be stopping the cycle of abuse. Yes. So before you go, tell us a little bit about your your nonprofit, the Legal Accountability Project. What does it do? What, you know, what are you guys up to? And when did you start it? So we launched on June 1st, 2022, but um, I quit my job in April to get this thing up and running. So we've been cooking it up for a couple months, but we're very new. Um, so we're basically seeking to ensure that law clerks are having positive experiences and then extending support and resources to the ones who don't. The Legal Accountability Project is the resource I wish existed when I was a law student applying for clerkships, when I was a law clerk facing mistreatment and not sure where to go for help, and when I was a former clerk going through the judicial complaint process. So we are working on two major initiatives in collaboration with law schools beginning this fall. Mm -hmm. The first one is a centralized clerkships reporting database where current and former clerks will create an account anonymously and write a report about their judge, good, bad, medium. We want to hear everything. And every law student at the participating institutions can read all the reports, not just reports from their alumni. Yes. Reports from everybody is the best way to democratize and centralize all the information that law clerks need before applying. And then the second thing we are doing is a workplace assessment of the federal and state judiciaries. It's going to elucidate data on the types of clerks facing mistreatment the availability of resources in their courthouses, and their concerns about reporting. It's basically a climate survey. The federal judiciary has been notoriously willing, unwilling to conduct one, which I think is a red flag that they're kind of covering up some stuff. So we're trying to pick up the slack for them. And so we are right now speaking with about 50 potential law school partners. Um, After year one, we're going to circle back with everybody who hasn't signed on. And we're already seeing like a groundswell from student organizations where we'll be on their campuses in the fall talking about these issues. And they are already asking their administrations to sign on to this. It is enormously important. There are a couple law schools that have some sort of internal database and some schools do post-clerkship surveys, but it's the vast minority. And what they do is just not capturing the scope of the problem. They are not receiving negative reports because law clerks fear reporting back to their clerkship directors and yep, dean. Yep which enables some of these folks to disclaim responsibility for the problem and say, well, this doesn't happen at our school. We interact with only good judges and our law clerks have positive experiences, which is just false. <laughs> so yep. we are trying to, yeah, we're, we've had a very positive response from the law schools, but there are definitely some places where we're facing resistance. And, you know, I want every person who wants to clerk to be able to clerk to have a positive experience that launches their career to the next step. I don't want what happened to me to happen to anyone else. And Mm -hmm. I feel enormously strongly that this resource would address some of the initial issues. It won't fix everything, but it's incredibly important. It's what I wish I had. You know, my law school didn't have any of these resources. Mm -hmm. And 
I was never warned of this judge's history of misconduct and it ended up really tanking my career aspirations. So Right. Although you're now doing something really worthwhile that is needed <laughs> and necessary. I'm on a better career path now. Yes. But definitely yeah. not where I thought I would be at the stage in my career. Right. So, okay. Final word. I would love to know what advice you might have. So a lot of my listeners are practicing lawyers. They are not clerks. They are in some type of private practice or in-house, and they might be thinking, okay, interesting. Yes, there's obviously a lot of change that needs to happen, but this isn't my problem, and there's nothing I can do um, because of what I do now. What would you say to them? What is something they could do? So I would say a couple of things. First of all, Judicial misconduct affects everybody. It affects every attorney, whether you clerked or not, whether you interact with judges or not. Today's law clerks are tomorrow's big law associates, AUSAs, PDs, judges, everybody. And the issue is, it is primarily women, LGBTQ clerks, and non-white clerks who are facing mistreatment and who are ultimately driven from the profession. We have a less diverse profession because of judicial misconduct. We have a worse profession because of judicial misconduct. At this point, if you are not engaged on these issues, if you are not committed to supporting the next generation of young attorneys and clerks, you're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. What you can do is support young attorneys who confide in you about the problem, encourage them to report, encourage them to file a complaint. We also have an enormous problem in this space, connecting mistreated clerks with attorneys who are willing to represent them to go up against judges. Mm. So you can offer to assist with pro bono legal representation. I'm enormously grateful for my attorneys who assisted me. You can donate to the Legal Accountability Project and our initiatives. Uh, You can learn more information and support the work we are doing. There are many different things you can do to help, but we really just need everybody to be engaged on these issues. And- I think one of the other things we talked a little bit about the judge's negative reference in, in my story, the DC USAO saw this outrageous negative reference that looked totally different from everything in my application. And they just took the judge's word because he's a judge. Don't question it. If you are a legal employer, you should really be interrogating a negative reference from a judge. If it, it should create a red flag, not about the applicant, but about the judge. Um, and I'm just really hoping to, change the culture. Uh, We really are deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. And I think that is enormously dangerous for the profession. And I would agree with that. And I will include links to everything here, especially the Legal Accountability Project for those of you who want to check it out and maybe give um, in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. Thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for having me on the show. This was such a great conversation, and I look forward to seeing what you guys are up to in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Life & Law Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and aren't yet a follower or subscriber, be sure to hit the follow and or subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. For show notes and free resources to help you succeed in both Life & Law, including the Life & Law Roadmap, visit lifeandlawpodcast.com.